listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We have a new series to share with you. I am pretty excited about that. So excited I'm hitting the microphone. (laughs) Sarah, are you kind of... I am super excited for this. Like history nerd level, it's going to go through the roof and I am here for it. (laughs) So we have a history series and we are excited to dig into this. We'll share more in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us for this series, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie is Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you, Andy and Sarah. I'm glad to be here, especially since I know Sarah is a history nerd because I'm the history nerd of the history nerd. So at least she and I will have a good time. Yes, I'm excited for this. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty excited about this too. Thank you for agreeing to join us for this. Last year, we were oh, just thinking about how much we enjoy our conversations with you and learn so much history when we're with you. And so then we pitched the idea of let's do a series. And then you threw us a couple of ideas. And one of those was the English Reformation. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to dig into the English Reformation. However, we have to ask the question, what is (laughs) the English Reformation? We, We hear this phrase occasionally, but we may not really know what the English Reformation is. Looking forward to unpacking that over the eight, nine, 10, 12 episodes, somewhere Let's around eight, eight to nine <laughs> episodes or so. What is the, what do we mean by this phrase, the English Reformation? Great question. Let me start by thinking about the American experience and the denominations that we run into. Uh, among the several denominations that we have in America, there are a number of them that come out of the English Reformation. The first of those is the Episcopalian Church. The fact that there is an Episcopalian Church here in America is a result of the English Reformation. And then following that, a number of churches like the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, United Church of Christ, even the Baptist, actually developed out of the Episcopalian Church in England. So the Reformation that we're gonna be talking about actually gave birth to a number of different church families that are still major presence here, here in America. So how what what does that mean then? I think a lot I think a lot of times as Lutherans when we hear the word reformation and any words that surround that we automatically it's all about think me. Yeah, we <laughs> automatically think Germany, Martin Luther and that's about where we end. Why is that? Yeah, well well sometimes we remember that the Scandinavians are Lutherans too. But but uh, right yes. that doesn't always happen. Well, we got to remember that at the time of Luther, there was con- there were connections and communications between the Christians all over Europe, especially those belonging to the Western tradition, those acknowledging the, the Pope as their head and so forth. And one of the reasons for that was the fact that Latin was the of the educated. And so when Luther wrote and then published works in Germany in Latin, those works could be and were taken over or published in other places. And Luther's ideas therefore could spread outside of the German speaking world. So we have reformers and reformations all over Europe at this time, some of them more significant than others. And 
the Reformation ideas that took hold in England would eventually contribute to the formation of another form of Protestantism, namely the Church of England, which, as I said before, ends up being the Episcopalian Church here in America. So the Reformation was not something, was not a phenomenon isolated only to part of Europe, say Germany, but was actually all over the continent in the years following the posting of the 95 Theses. And one of the places where it took hold was England. Okay, this might be a two-part question. <laughs> we asked, what is the? what do we mean by the English Reformation? What do we mean by the term Reformation? Mm. Then if this is happening in, in, in a number of places, and was the, the term Reformation even used at that time? Or is it something where we look back on history and say, that was the Reformation? Well, basically, it's a term we use to describe the phenomenon of the 16th century changes in religion, although the word itself had, was used both before and during the Reformation period. But it actually is a good word to understand what it was that people we call reformers like Luther thought they were doing. They weren't trying to do anything new. They were trying to reform a Christendom, a church that had gone bad. In other words, to form it again to what it had been when our Lord and the apostles originally established it. And that idea really had been percolating in European society for quite some time before the Reformation. If you, if you think of European history a little bit, you probably have heard of the term Renaissance. Well, the Renaissance was a movement prior to the Reformation, actually a century or so before the Reformation, a movement among intellectuals especially to revitalize the church and revitalize society by going back to the sources of our society or civilization, which meant on the one hand, going back to the literature, language, and thinking of the ancient Romans and the Greeks, but also when Christians started thinking, they would say, well, we'll add to that a revitalization of the church by going back to the sources of Christianity, particularly the Bible and especially the New Testament, but not only the Bible, also its earliest interpreters, theologians, and pastors, namely the church fathers. So to revitalize, renew, reform the church, Christendom, men, mostly theologians, sometimes laymen, were going back to these classical works and using them, first of all, to judge what was going on in society and in the church, and then to advocate reforms that would bring society and the church more into line with what they saw as the true and pure forms of the church and of society. So these ideas were around and Luther picked them up and tried to do something, first of all, in his challenging indulgences, and then that meant taking on the authorities in the church and to degree in the state. And when you had support from other authorities, say like the elector of Saxony or the king of England, then changes could actually be made in the official church in those lands or territories. So the Reformation starts in one place, but spreads to others as leaders 
kings, counts, dukes, earls, even free cities, adopted that model and those ideas and then put them into practice in their territories. And usually that meant breaking with the Church of Rome. So that's really kind of what the Reformation is. It's a period of time in which different parts of Christendom embrace these new ideas of reforming the church and end up breaking or separating from the church that today we call the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of the Pope. It happened in Germany, happened in England, happened in the Netherlands, almost happened in France. Someday we need to do a series on that. That's a really interesting story. Happened in Scandinavia and isolated other places as well. Oh, there's just, there's so many things. And I know we're going to get into that relationship between the church and the state in this time frame a little bit later. So I don't want to ask about that right now because that's, I know that's jumping ahead. But what, what do we learn as, as American Lutherans with this German heritage? What do we learn from, or what will we learn from studying a Reformation that happened in a different country with different, with, those church bodies that, that are now different from us. But what do we learn from studying how this happened in, in another place and in another, another place with other people? Well, I think we can learn two things. First of all, that it is important to get our message out to other people and other places because the Christian religion is for them. So Luther's Reformation works. It was good that they were spread around and read and digested. But the other thing that you have to realize is that you cannot always control the outcome and that things happen by the providence of God that you wouldn't have expected, but that also maybe you wouldn't even have wanted. But that's part of life in a fallen world. Our job is to get it out and God will do with it what he believes is good and right. And of course, sinners will do with it what 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 they want to do with it as well. So the idea that we should make use of the opportunities, especially that we have today for communicating the gospel around the world in multitude of languages. It's things that we really ought to support, we ought to pray about, we ought to work at doing as effectively as we can, because that's what they did in the 16th century with important consequences, but even politically and culturally as well. You shared earlier uh, a number of denominations that have resulted or that are the, I guess, the descendants of this particular Reformation that now exist in North America. And obviously those different church bodies have different confessions from what we hold as, as evangelical Lutherans. There's so much we can learn from this Reformation, though. And I had a really good question and I forgot what it was. <laughs> oh, no! because I was just trying to unpack it. But we'll get to more about what this <laughs> what this Reformation means, the English Reformation means, and why we're learning more about it, and actually where it begins in just a moment. We have more to talk about with Dr. Cameron McKenzie in our series on the English Reformation. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. 
Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are taking a look at the English Reformation in our new series with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So now we have this picture of what a Reformation is and a little bit about what was happening, I guess, theologically? No? That's really, really, culturally, maybe. (laughs) Theologically, where... I think is is probably where we'll go next. So where does the English Reformation begin? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when people think of English Reformation, if they think of it as at all, they think of the Henry VIII breaking with the Pope in order to get a divorce, or or maybe they think of Bloody Mary sending lots of Protestants to the stake. And those things are a part of the story because monarchs in England are, you know, the decision makers. And so when a monarch says, we ought to change religion, things are going to happen. But we Lutherans recognize, I guess all Christians would, (laughs) that it's not the government that establishes the Christian faith. It's people embracing the Christian faith, hearing the gospel, leaving, responding to it. And in the case of this 16th century phenomenon, as I mentioned earlier, Luther's works, but not only Luther's, Melanchthon's works, Swingley's works, the Reformers' works were often done initially in Latin as well as in their own vernacular tongues. And those Latin works, as early as the 1520s in Luther's case, were making their way into the English intellectual Latin reading world. They'd be published either, yeah, they're usually published on the continent and then shipped over and then sold, purchased, and read in places where there are were, were such readers. And One of the places where they were particularly popular was Cambridge, University of Cambridge, where already prior to the Reformation, the great humanist Erasmus had worked and had advocated reform of the church, returning to the Bible and the fathers and so forth. And so there was already kind of a hunger and thirst for that prior to Luther. And when Luther's works came along, then they started studying Luther. And as a matter of fact, there were so many young students and professors who were um, reading Luther and talking about it that they used to meet in a tavern in Cambridge. It was called the White Horse Inn. And there were so many of them talking about Luther that they got the nickname of Little Germany, Little Germany. Well, in the 1520s, a number of those who would become leading Protestants in England were there in Cambridge. There were three men who would become archbishops, nine who would become bishops, six who would become translators and or publishers of the English Bible, and 10 men who later on would become martyrs for the English Reformation. So this was a beachhead, if you will, for new ideas, ideas leading to reform and change in the church. Now, it's mostly the young intellectuals who are gravitating toward this. And as a matter of fact, the establishment at Cambridge and in the Church of England in general were opposed to these new ideas. They were traditionalists in religion. They wanted to defend the old doctrines, the old ways of doing things, the old connections with the Pope and so forth. But there were some who, some of these young men who embraced it. And I want to talk with you maybe a little bit about a couple of those here. One of them was a fellow by the name of Thomas Bilney. He was a little guy, so his nickname was Little Bilney. One of his colleagues described him as a very simple, good soul, 
nothing fit or meet for this wretched world. And as a matter of fact, that was his description after Bilney had been martyred. And that's one of the interesting things about a number of these early men, they became martyrs for the Christian faith. Now, Bilney was one of these guys interested in these new ideas, meeting at the White Horse Inn and so forth. His first attraction or the first thing that attracted him to the cause of Reformation was Erasmus' New Testament. Probably you and your leaders or your listeners perhaps remember that Erasmus was the first man to put into print and publish the Greek New Testament. First time ever in print and available for people to read and use. Well, he accompanied that because there weren't that many people who could read Greek. He accompanied that with kind of a fresh Latin translation of the Bible. And that's what attracted Bilney. He didn't know Greek, but he knew Latin and he liked the way Erasmus had translated the New Testament. And by reading the New Testament, he came to realize that there was lots of stuff going on in the church in his day that weren't a part of New Testament Christianity. But even more important than that, almost kind of like Martin Luther, he was laboring under a sense of his own sinfulness and really resonated to a passage. This is what he told people later from St. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This was a powerful experience for Billing to read and apply this passage to himself. And it really changed his orientation to the Christian religion. It was no longer kind of a, a religion of doing stuff, praying to the saints, saying masses to get people out of purgatory. It now became for him, as for Luther, a religion which centered on the work of Christ, which you made your own through faith alone, just believing what God had said to sinners for the sake of Jesus Christ, you are. So that Thomas Bilney kind of kicks it off at Cambridge. He, like others who get excited about religion, did not keep it to himself. And one of the people he was associated with there at Cambridge, who was likewise interested in the, they called it the new learning, the idea of reforming society in the church, was a fellow by the name of Hugh Latimer. Now, Latimer, like Bilney, was a priest, but unlike Bilney, Latimer was developing a reputation as a preacher, and he was licensed to preach by the university and was becoming a, a known as an effective preacher. But when he got wind of what Luther and others were saying on the continent, he thought those things were heresy. So he used his preaching pulpit to oppose the Reformation, to oppose Luther, to oppose Melanchthon. Well, Bilney heard it, thought he'd try to straighten Latimer out. So he told his fellow priests that he wanted to come to him for confession, wanted to come to him for confession. Well, Latimer thought that he wanted to come in to confess his sins. No, he wanted to come in and confess the truth of gospel. And it was through the witness of Bilney that Latimer became a Christian as well. And the two of them started working at bringing the gospel to the people in Cambridge and thereabouts, visiting prisoners, visiting people who were sick, visiting the poor, trying to ameliorate their 
physical conditions, but also share the gospel with them. And to a certain degree, they were successful. But these activities also brought them to the attention of the authorities. As I said before, the authorities did not embrace the Reformation. They didn't want to hear about criticism of church structures, ceremonies, rituals, beliefs, and they didn't want to have these guys going out and spreading it to the people. So Vilni, in particular, uh, was summoned before the uh, church authorities. This was after he had preached against uh, the veneration of sacred images, you know, identifying images as the presence of God and the saints and so forth. He got into trouble and he was summoned actually to appear before the most powerful man in England under the king at the time. This was a fellow by the name of Thomas Woolsey, Cardinal Woolsey, who had a special interest in Cambridge University. So he, he was presented to Woolsey and basically Woolsey forced him to take back what he had been preaching and teaching or else. And the or else meant, well, actually it could mean the death penalty. So, all right, Bilney did that. And then similarly through the Bishop of London, who forced him to take it back and put him into prison. And he recanted again. But once out of trouble with these authorities, Bilney became very, very troubled by what he had done. He had betrayed his principles. He had betrayed the gospel. And so he decided to atone by redoubling his efforts to propagate the truth, preaching and spreading the English Bible, which is now available. Once more, he was arrested. And when you were arrested and tried for heresy on the second time, if you were convicted, it was the death penalty that was imposed. And that's what happened to Thomas Building. August of 1531, he was burned at the stake. One of the first Protestant martyrs in the story of the Church of England. So it was before England started to become a Protestant country, you were at great risk if you were too outspoken in your embrace of these new ideas. And so Bilney is kind of the first of the evangelicals, Protestants, even Lutheran, if you want to call him that, but he's not the last. There are others. Latimer is one of them. Robert Barnes is another of them. Pindale is another of them. And in the case of all three of those men from this period in the 1520s, each of them eventually was martyred for his Christian faith as well. So there was a real reformation and there were real evangelicals. And again, I'm a little bit leery about calling them Lutherans, but there were real evangelical Christians in England prior to Henry VIII. I think that's so interesting yeah. Yeah. that so often we do really only think about the Reform English Reformation starting with King Henry VIII, and yet there is so much of this other backstory and history and all of these other things that were happening. Why, why do you think that, that we kind of gloss over all of that and kind of just skip to King Henry VIII and, and his whole situation? Well, his whole situation really fits, you know, fits into the Hollywood view of life, you know, that it's all about romance, love, faithfulness, unfaithfulness. And so I think he's a, he, he is, it, it is a great story, easy to talk about, easy to express. Whereas the Bilneys, we don't know that much about them. And, you know, they're not so important, not so significant as something like Henry VIII. So, and Henry VIII is a part of the story. 
but he's not the whole story, as I think this series will point out. Mm-hmm. Well, we have more to learn, but we'll have to do that next time in our series with Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for being our guest today. You're very welcome. Look forward to doing another with you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.